The stories I'm telling today are true. And they are decades in the past. I'm telling you that because I want you to know I don't need any comfort about them. That's not why I'm telling them. Like most people who have such stories to tell, what I want more than anything is for the telling of them to help prevent future suffering. One reason I've been thinking about guns this week as Independence Day approaches is, of course, the recent Supreme Court ruling that has overruled states such as California and enabled more people to carry and conceal guns without giving any reason for needing or wanting them. In fact, the ruling says explicitly and repeatedly that it is improper, unconstitutional to require a reason. Which is very strange, but because to my ears and to those of many legal minds and justices, including the author of the dissent, the, the dissent, the Bill of Rights clearly spells out that people do need a reason in order to join a well-regulated militia. However, I'm not going to dwell on the constitutional issues. I want to look at the real effect guns have on our communities. So for example, 10 days before the ruling, a 15-year-old boy was shot to death just a few miles from here, from UUCPA, in East Palo Alto. He was found in an alley, teetering on the brink of death, and despite the efforts of EMTs, he died shortly after arriving at the hospital. So on this Independence Day Eve, we would do well to ask whether the prevalence of guns in his community, that is our community, made this young man more free. Or whether it made more free the two boys about his age who now stand accused of his murder. I could, of course, speak of any number of others killed by guns in murders, accidents, and suicides. 40 to 45,000 U.S. Americans every year. But the problem with numbers is that they're kind of numbing. What can we say to shake off this numbness? Shall we imagine that over the course of two years, every child and adult in Mountain View dies of a gunshot. That would capture the right numbers, the immensity of the disaster that we tolerate. Or shall we put it in terms of time? That to recount the names of those who die each year, the speaker would need about two days, not including time for sleep, to wet his parched throat, or to stop a while to sob her heart out. Maybe names and proximity help make it real. By bringing it close to home, we may be able to break through the numbness and realize, yes, this is what's happening. Talk about people like this boy in East Palo Alto, close to home, the next town over. Talk about the death of someone the age of someone you love. Talk about the death of someone you know. 
but how many must die this way before every single one of us has lost someone to a gun? Another reason that this topic has been on my mind is that I recently spent a week with my niece. She's 20, she's at college, and I and my mother went to her college town where she's spending the summer, met up with her and her mother, my sister there. It was just such a pleasure to be with this young woman. I can't believe it's been 20 years since I celebrated her birth, and now she's this fabulous, interesting, independent person whom I'm getting to know adult to adult as a mentor and friend in her life. It's a great relationship, as, as you know, if you've been blessed by, um, by aunt or uncle and uh, nibbling relationships. I like being a part of her life. I like anticipating how she'll change, how our relationship will change over the years to come. And so that was making me think about what I lost when I was not quite six years old. That was my age on June 3rd, 1974, when my aunt, my mother's only sibling, Rosalind Shapiro Lewison, died. She was 38 years old, which means she has now been dead for much longer than she was alive. She didn't get to have that aunt-niece relationship with my sister and me. Not for long. We barely remember her. And what we lost by that is unknowable. What conversations would we have had by now? How would she have formed that special relationship with us that uh, the sibling of a parent can form? What kind of person would she be in our lives? What kind of life, what kind of people would we be in her life if she were still alive? We can't know. What's worse is how minor a loss that is among all the losses caused by her death. Her four children grew up without her. My mother was suddenly rendered an only child. And when their mother, my grandmother, died several years later, my mother mourned without a sibling to share her sorrow and memories. Aunt Rosie was shot by her husband. He was drinking. He was often drinking. And they had an argument. At the end of it, she was dead on their kitchen floor. The reason he had a gun, according to what he had said some years earlier, was to defend himself from his enemies. As the Supreme Court has now ruled should be true in every single state, that's all he needed to say. He didn't need to say even that. He just had to go and buy one. Now, what enemies he could have had to worry about? He was a poet. He was a college professor. He lived in a home on the main coast, a idyllic rural community. So it's really hard to imagine what he could have been afraid of in any rational way. I guess what he was really afraid of was his own demons. The thing is, when your own demons are your enemies, the very last thing that you need to have on hand is a gun. And the very last thing that your wife and your four children need for you to have in the house is a gun. 
but he did not have to prove he had anything rationally to fear in order to own a handgun and keep it loaded and brandish it and use it to threaten his wife. He didn't have to show that he didn't abuse substances. He didn't have to show that he didn't abuse his wife. He didn't even have to show that he didn't have a criminal background or any dangerous mental illnesses. This is the future that the NRA and other gun manufacturer lobby groups envision for all of us all over the country when they oppose background checks and want to make sure that there are large loopholes in them to make sure anybody who wants to have a gun can get a hold of one. Now, I wanted to talk about this because something that just seemed like a crazy nightmare about 10 years ago. The, um, the posturing of the gun manufacturers lobby as um, trying to prevent gun violence by allowing as much access to guns as possible by quote, good guys with guns. It has taken over public policy in the years since. When people talk about how we need to make sure that the good guys are allowed guns, I want everybody to know. They're talking about people like my Uncle Jimmy, the man who shot Aunt Rosie. He was a middle-aged, middle-class, white, college-educated poet and English professor. He was Jewish for crying out loud. If we had decided to arm the citizens of their little town, Cape Elizabeth, Maine, so that they might protect themselves and everybody else from machine gun wielding drug dealers and mass murderers, Jimmy is just the kind of person that they would have handed a gun to. They would have said, great, take it, defend us. And he would have taken it home and used it exactly the way that he did use it. So who are these good people? who are supposed to protect us. 21 years after Rozzy's death by handgun, another good guy had a huge impact on my family. And this story is also instructive as we look at gun policy. I say he was a good guy, even though he also had trouble with substance abuse and abusing his wife, because by all outer measures, he was a good guy. He was also middle-aged, middle-class, wealthy, really. He was white. He was a college graduate. He was a member of the congregational church in town. He was a respected businessman and a pillar of his community. He was just the kind of person who, if you believe in this mythical world of black hats and white hats, he's supposed to defend us from the bad guys. His name was Malcolm Todd. When his wife left him for my father, Malcolm went berserk. He sought my dad out at the college where he taught, where my father taught, and he stabbed him half a dozen times. Very fortunately for dad and for all of us, Malcolm was scared of guns. Otherwise, he would surely have used one. Two very brave students heard the commotion and wrestled him off my dad. 
So I'm wondering, would they have dared to if he had been wielding a gun instead of a knife? You know, the gun, um, the gun lobby wants us to believe that knives are just as bad. <laughs> but as we all know, the saying goes, right? You don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. People choose guns because they are more deadly weapons. So if they'd seen this man shooting somebody over and over again, would they have approached him and, and restrained him? Not that it would have mattered. If my father had been shot even once in some of the places that he was stabbed, his chest, his temple, he would have died then and there instead of arriving at an excellent hospital on the brink of death and being dragged back from it by their highly expert trauma team. Unfortunately, very expert because New Haven, Connecticut sees a lot of these sorts of injuries. In the years since then, not a visit with my father has gone by without my being keenly aware how close I came to losing him when I was only 26. For that matter, not a fatal shooting appears in the newspaper without my thinking that would have been my family if Malcolm had had a gun. The myth that was floated here and there 15, 20 years ago and then seriously promoted 10 years ago has now taken hold in this country. The myth of bad guys versus good guys. It says that there are violent thugs or crazed mass murderers on the one hand, and then there are fine upstanding citizens on the other hand. But as we know, most murders aren't like Uvalde or Buffalo or Newtown, Connecticut. They happen in ones and twos. And they're not planned, but they result from the heat of the moment combined with a highly fatal weapon. Most murder victims know their killer. Many, in fact, are killed by a relative or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. My aunt's death and my father's near miss were typical. A personal dispute plus alcohol or other drugs plus a person who is prone to irrational thinking and violent behavior. The only difference between them was that in one case, the attacker had a gun and in the other one, he didn't. Again, you can kill somebody with a knife, with a baseball bat. Uh, you can kill somebody with your bare hands. But bullets are vastly more likely than any of these to be fatal. To those who say, oh, but Amy, a good guy with a gun could have saved your aunt had he been there, had he stepped in. A good guy with a gun could have made a more effective rescue of your dad. I have several questions from the real world. And I give you all license to use these, this example and pose these questions to anybody who tries these arguments in your hearing. Can you imagine my aunt, good guy, good woman, my aunt, pulling out a gun and telling Jimmy to back off? How would that have gone? It probably only would have confirmed his paranoia. 
Paranoid people do not surrender their weapons. In a movie, you know, he would drop the gun. But in real life, he was drunk and enraged and irrational. And he didn't take any crap from his wife. He had been abusing her for years. He would be more likely to respond by pulling the trigger than by dropping the gun. Moving to my dad's story, can you imagine being a college student who hears cries for help and comes running to find one man stabbing another over and over? If you have a gun, what do you do with it? Shoot the assailant? Please don't. That's my dad a few inches from him. The assault was in a campus bathroom, so the walls there are tile and metal and the chances of you, the good guy, or my dad getting killed by a ricocheting bullet are high. We know plenty of cases of um, hostages and other people who trained marksmen are trying to rescue dying in that way. Or maybe you shouldn't fire the gun, right? Maybe you should yell, freeze. Great idea. But again, Malcolm was not exactly in the grip of reason. If he had been, he wouldn't have wrecked his own life by committing a felony just because his wife had had an affair. But that's what he did. Now, let's apply the real world to the mass murder scenario where millions of Americans fantasize that an armed security guard or elementary school teacher or heroic passerby will save the day by plugging the bad guy. One man tried in Buffalo. He was heroic. He died. Let's set aside the fact that this um, being the real world, heroes are not protected by the principle of evil marksmanship, you know, where all the stormtroopers don't seem to have any aim at all and the bad guys ever actually hit their target. Yeah, that's not actually how it works in the real world. Let's also set aside the fact that even trained gun users can't just pull out their guns and hit their target. There's ample experimentation showing how difficult that actually is and how rare it actually is for, say, police who have to do gun training on a regular basis to be able to uh, accurately shoot somebody in that situation. If we follow the advice of the NRA and the gun owners of America, might, might better be called the gun manufacturers of America, when someone starts shooting in a crowd, what you're going to have now is a crowd with several people pointing guns. How is anyone, the police when they arrive, terrified bystanders, other would-be heroes, supposed to know which of them is a good guy and which was the original shooter? I can tell you one thing, if any of the people with the guns are black or brown, they're going to get shot. No one's going to think they're a hero. They're going to think they're the murderer. Even taking out the racial element, the scenario re resembles nothing so much as the firing squad and the ethnic joke, you know? That's a circle with the condemned in the middle. Except in this situation, we have dozens of innocent parade watchers or elementary school students or moviegoers also there in the line of fire.
there are good guys and bad guys of all genders in the world. There definitely are. But it's not usually that simple. So often, the person who commits a crime is someone who was a pretty good guy until he had too much liquor in him or too much wounded pride or too little ability to manage his anger and he had a deadly weapon in his hands. That is one reason that the gun in your house, again, looking at the actual facts, not the fantasies, a gun in your house is far more likely to kill you or someone you love than any of your enemies. Another reason this is true is that the way guns most often kill US Americans is they become suicide weapons. But that's another subject. I won't get into all of that any more than I will get into the Second Amendment, but let's just be clear. When you don't have a highly fatal weapon at your disposal, you are much less likely to end up dying by suicide. That too is amply studied and proven by science. So I want to be clear with the advocates of unarmed citizenry, which now unfortunately includes the majority on the Supreme Court. When you set out to arm the good guys, you are talking about handing guns, no questions asked, to people like my uncle, Jimmy Lewison, to people like my father's assailant, Malcolm Todd. Ten years ago, the massacre at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut, filled us all with so much grief and fear. And along with all that grief and fear, the worst thing that it instilled in me was what would happen if this idea really got rolling in our public life? The idea that arming more citizens will make us safer. It's based on fiction and fantasy, and it's just plain wrong. And that makes it very, very dangerous. Yet, that's when it was, after Newtown, that the gunmakers lobby went all in on the good guys with guns argument. Not coincidentally, that's the approach that leads to more gun purchases. I think this is a community for whom this is actually a spiritual, a sacred message. That we need public policy, that we need ways of governing our behavior with each other, treating one another, that are based on facts, that are based on reality, that are based on truth. I feel like we need a good phrase for that because, you know, fact-based isn't very emotionally laden. Not like words like freedom. So I throw it out to you, if you can come up with a good, a good strategy, a good a way to frame this that will help people to realize on a gut level why it's so important for our response to public health problems and to the balancing of our freedoms to be based in facts, to be based in truth. 
it is emotionally laden it is a sacred trust like freedom because it is about freedom our religious conviction is that to be free we must know the truth in fact long before humanism took root and blossomed in Unitarian Universalism we had that from the Gospel of John and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free it is bedrock of our religious tradition of what brings us together as a community of what sends us forth in the world to try to find the right way to live for ourselves and our communities that while falsehoods can provide short-term comfort the truth will not be denied and is it is only the truth that will keep us safe that will make us happy that will make us good people that will create a beloved community the truth is that while a well-intentioned armed civilian will sometimes stop a shooting from happening or stop it from becoming worse those cases are vastly outnumbered by the cases in which the supposed good guy is the killer to make policy based on rare anecdotes is like banning seat belts because occasionally someone's life is saved by their not wearing a seat belt yes it happens but no serious person argues that therefore seat belt laws are dangerous the truth is that country after country can trace its changes for the better or worse in gun homicides and suicides to the changes in legal access to weapons um, I'm sorry they can country after country can change tra trace these changes to changes in access they build access becomes easier the suicide and homicide rate goes up and access becomes tighter and they go down Australia is a particularly vivid example because after one one devastating mass shooting they passed much stricter controls on access to guns and it's not that people never die of gun violence by suicide homicide or accident in Australia but it plummeted not only gun violence plummeted but murder on the whole dropped suicide on the whole dropped other means did not take up the slack Australia is not an outlier this is typical the result is that hundreds of Australians are alive now who would have died what are we to say to the tens the hundreds of thousands of US Americans who are now under the ground to their millions of family members friends community members who are gone because we keep running in the wrong direction every time we have this conversation what kind of freedom is this surely this is not 
with the founders of this country, flawed as they were, it is not what they envisioned in their greatest ideals when they imagined people living together freely, balancing as they saw they must the different kinds of freedoms. Surely they did not imagine that we were all supposed to cower in fear or clutch a weapon at our hip as we move through this life in this country. Because the court is so clear on this, the solutions will not come swiftly. But the court turned gun policy around over just the last few decades, and it can be turned back over and over again. The people who want more and more of us to have guns are louder, scarier, more determined, better funded than those of us who are armed only with the truth. It's time for truth to speak up.